Tonight I'd like to talk about <clears throat> touching the earth. Part of it is uh, this talk is motivated from uh, the demonstrations that uh, have occurred this week and what many, most of the demonstrators, um, where they're rooted in their concerns and as well as the a focus, uh, a very genuine and sincere focus of wanting to bring the earth and the topic of ecology into some of these talks that are going on. And uh, so I thought I would just talk about that, if I could, tonight. And then we have some homework up here on the table. I invite you to take one of those. And then next week, we'll have a, a discussion uh, around that particular homework topic. So it'll really be a two-week uh, topic. The gesture I think that's most um, memorable for me that the Buddha made in regards to uh, how he felt connected to the earth was the most common Buddha statue that you see in which he is sitting uh, with one hand resting on his lap and the second draped over his knee where he's touching the earth. And the traditional explanation of that is that on the night of his enlightenment, he was um, being questioned internally uh, by uh, his mind as to why he's, what right did he have to sit there like that when the world was in such need of his service and his help or whatever. And uh, he just reached down and touched the earth as a confirmation or as a testament to his being exactly in the right place where he needed to be. It's called the bear witness pose, bearing witness. The earth was bearing witness upon that. Now, I think that it was a much more human gesture than that. And I would like to make it into a more of a hum, human gesture. Uh, he was being rattled, I would think, by some of his self-doubt by some of his worry, by some of his concern. Many of the things that lace our practice when we get up in the morning or before we go to bed at night and try to sit, our mind gets rather shaken. And what we usually do is get up. <laughs> the Buddha did something else. And it's, a, it's really a loving gesture. And he said, whoa, I just need to be grounded here. I just need to come back. I need to touch the core here, too, too much stuff going on. And he, he sought his home. He sought his place of being. He sought his connection. His connectedness was something that manifested as something much more larger than just who he was and, and, and felt the base of his operation, the base of, of who he was, the groundedness of his being. You know, it's so easy, I think, in spiritual work, and we get lost in these um, esoteric spirituality, Ouija boards, and life, past life regressions, 
seances, smorgasbord of choices that we have available to us. And there are considerable. A number of years ago, I went to um, such a smorgasbord. It was called the Body, Mind, and Soul Conference here in town. I was the meditation teacher. <laughs> um, and um, so they invited all the different people in, and it was really like a circus. I don't know if any of you were there, but there were some 2,000 people who were. And they had the big names that could talk about such things. And what in here was past life regressions, and over here was crystal work, and over here was cleaning your auras. And, uh, and I spent the weekend there, uh, and I don't think I got a thing from it. I ended up just sort of scratching my head and thinking, what was all that about? I mean, it really didn't go to any depth. It didn't touch the earth. It wasn't, wasn't grounded in some way. It was just um, more of the same thing that we do in universities or in the different pleasure-seeking ways, except it was more esoteric than that. It was less obvious, less of this form and more of some form that is hidden from us. But same thing, communicating with the dead. I mean, <laughs> we should learn to communicate with each other first. <laughs> 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 the dead would come, <laughs> would come in due course. Um, but what does all that have to do? What does all that have to do with uh, how we live? Why we suffer? And where we focus our attention? So, I, I mean, the question that the Buddha solved by touching the earth was he was looking for a practical solution here, something that was right here in front of him, that wasn't abiding in some ethereal plane, but right here. You see, the question I think he asked or solved when he touched the earth is this is about the earth, not about heaven. He didn't go like this. He didn't point upward. He pointed down to the base of our being. Heaven, in the way Christians normally think about heaven, is a nice place for people, separatists. Randy Weaver and the skinheads. But not just that separatist. All of us who think in terms of separation, think in terms of a separate place because we're trying to create a very nice idea of a place called heaven, and it may actually exist. I don't have any reason to disbelieve that it does. But then it's just like this, except it's nicer, more pleasant, and you're pleasantly there, and you're still separately pleasantly there. And so the answer to me isn't skyward. It's right here, right now dealing with what's in front of our eyes. He was saying something there and pointing downward instead of upward. He was talking about the normal and not the paranormal behavior. 
not ESP. During the Buddhist time, there was a great deal of movement and emphasis from other traditions on negating the body, negating the earth, and sending your mind into sublime states where you could escape the rather earthly ordinariness of our everyday existence. And the Buddha himself went through a series of those trainings and he dispelled, he just negated all of that training as having very little to do with wisdom and understanding and freedom. And he said very clearly that you can't, he taught uh, that you can't push away the earth or the body. And I think when we talk about the earth, we really have to start with the body because our body is of the earth. The body is composed of the earth, the elements of the earth. And for us to think that we're ecological in trying to save our resources, and yet we're unconcerned, or at its worst, um, pushing away and aversive to our own body doesn't make sense. Seems to me that ecology begins with concern for the body that that's the basis of, of our earth that we carry around with us. And that we have to ask ourselves how we treat our bodies if we're going to truly ask ourselves and others to treat the earth with more respect. So we have to take care of our own personal earth first. Finding the ground within us. And I think that many of us have the problems in meditation that we do. And if your meditation is like many people who are relatively new in it, you sit down and you don't even know why you're there because there's so much discursive thought and so much of the mind is taking you away. And there's no ground or basis on which to plant ourselves and to steady ourselves within all of that movement that goes from A to Z. And it feels like we spend too much time in the air element, in the floating sensation. And in fact, in Buddhism, they talk about the four elements, the element of earth, fire, water, and air. And each of those have a corresponding experience associated with our mind and body. And the air element is very much that sense of floating, kind of thought-driven, spacious, uh, un, uh, when, when the mind isn't really fastened. It is, it's just kind of floating in a nebulous sort of way. And that's the internal experience of a mind that isn't fixed, isn't grounded. And so we use our practice to ground us into the earth. First we establish contact with the breath, and then we go to physical sensations, but we stay very grounded with the physical. And we also, at the same time, begin to learn about what the physical is. We begin to uncover the messages and mysteries of the physical body, the messages and mysteries of the earth itself, 
through our physical body and the wonders of it. Someone wrote, the ground holds answers to questions we have not yet learned to ask. I like that quote because it really does begin to unravel the mystery of who we are through the ground of our being. And I would suggest reflecting back again and again on that Buddha's simple gesture. When we find ourselves lost in the kind of muddled way that many of us sit in our meditation, come back to the ground. So much of our inability to hold ourselves to the ground is because of the speed at which we travel, the way we go through sort of haphazardly through the day, um, unconcerned with the ground, more concerned with what thoughts provoke us, uh, what direction thoughts provoke us in. And we don't, I mean, you can just feel many people, most people don't have any sense of basis of standing where they are, of owning what, who they are, of being any sense of solidity within themselves. And partly that is due, I think, to the high um, pinnacle of achievement that we give thought. And we really honor thought to such a degree in this society uh, and we only honor certain types of bodies. We don't really honor the body as a whole, the body as a, as a grounding force for our lives. And part of the reason is that we, many of us, have very poor self-body images, have very poor body images. And we don't feel comfortable with our body, and so why would we ground ourselves in there? Why would we focus? Why would we rest our attention upon something that we don't like, that we have aversion to, that we don't live up to the standards of the magazine's portrayal of what a body should look like in this culture? And so we find it even more difficult in our practice to settle in with our bodies because we inherently mistrust that body. It hasn't served us uh, in terms of our social engagements or in terms of how we think of ourselves as a person on this earth. We have to go beyond that immediate reaction and distaste, those immediate comparison and judgments that we have honed into us from body image. Body is much more a basis for our spiritual tool and much less a concern for whether it looks advantaged or disadvantaged in comparison to some other ideal body. That's not the point of the body. The point of the body is to ground, is to center, is to locate us on this earth so that we have a basis. The mind can't operate, can't see anything without a basis on which to stand. The Buddha in his gesture to the earth was pointing to the solution of our wandering mind. And we so often try to ground ourselves in thought 
in thinking ourselves out of a problem rather than the basis of our bodies. You know, the Buddha, when he was doubting, he reached to the earth and touched the earth. His doubt was assuaged, was solved through his contact with the physical. The basis of our doubts, when you doubt, how can you doubt? How can you doubt the Dharma when you can base yourself right there in your body and feel the earth and feel a part of the solidity and a part of the whole of that earth realm, of that earth element? You see, he was, he was showing that the earth is itself a solution to some of the most difficult mind states. We have to be careful of the air element. Or when we're angry, the fire element, the burning sensation of the mind, those aren't grounding elements. But if we base ourselves in the body as thoughts occur, if we base ourselves in the body as emotions occur, then we're providing a perimeter or a parameter for all of those other elements to be grounded within. And to not to lose focus of that body connectedness. And very naturally from that sense of bodyness, we want to we want to enhance it. We want it to be healthy. We want to do things which are beneficial for it, caring for it. And from that ecology of spirit and body comes an ecology of environment. We also want other people and the earth, the basis of which all, all bodies grow, to also have that same care and attention so deserved. And so to, from time to time to look around and to see how it is that I'm missing my ground, how it is that I'm missing my, my rootedness, my anchor, and can I come back to it? We did a, uh, after I just did a week long in uh, Houston. And uh, we ended the retreat uh, by having an hour of talk. But we defined the, the speaking in terms of being on retreat. So I gave them an hour to do that. And they all went off and spoke. And then they came back. And we discussed how no one was mindful at all. And the reason people gave was because immediately when they started engaging in speech, they lost the context of their body, of their focus, and lo got lost in the thoughts provoked by the speaking. And that's because thoughts are abstracts, they therefore lost the context of the groundedness of, of being here and now. So I said, OK, this time I'll give you another hour, and you'll focus in on the body and only speak from the body. So that the, if, if there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say. If there's something to say, you fo for first ground yourself in the body and then let the speech come out of that. Never to lose yourself in the thoughts of what you're doing without taking the body first as an anchor for that thought. And then they went off and they came back with much greater success having used the body as that vehicle to ground themselves. Try it yourself. Stay with the body as you speak, like I am right now, just speaking from the body. 
And it's much less worrisome. There's much less, you know, like, well, what are they thinking of me or all that sort of thing. You're just letting the body express itself. So when we ground ourselves in our body, the next step is a love for the earth. It's a next step after we've really resounded in appreciation for the body, not because it's prettier or uglier or fatter or thinner than someone else's, but because it's of the earth, because it's here and because it's mine and because it is a part of the vehicle of my awakening. And because it begins to, we begin to get a sense of how the body carries itself beyond into the earth and that grounding ourselves in the body also means that we become a companion of the earth, with the earth. You know, the Buddha sent his disciples to the root of trees to meditate, not into some fashionable city or room. Charles Lindbergh said, in the wilderness I sense the miracle of life, Now, I know most of us have had those moments of being outdoors, especially in this area that is, has such uh, access to the outside, where we really begin to get a sense of yourself being greater, being, more, being larger, more expanded, um, spiritually extended beyond just this isolation, sense, isolated sense of self in the outdoors. Many of us have been in the mountains or been by the shore and had glimpses of, of a sense of who we were that wasn't so confined by our fears and by just this limited sense of, of self-concern that travels with us mostly. But it began a sense of intimacy, a sense of interconnection, a sense of connectedness beyond just the physical, uh, uh, physical uh, sense of self. I looked up some website uh, quotes about the wilderness. Um, Walt Whitman said, uh, without wilderness, we will eventually lose the capacity to understand ourselves. Without that sense of wonder, that sense of being more than what we are when we're confined within city life, when we have touch to the, touching the natural resources, um, we, without that, we do lose a sense of who we are in, and, uh, in spirit and mind. And to stay within the touch of the earth for, our, for its effect on our sanity. I, um, I worked with a woman who uh, was um, still grieving the loss of her five-year-old daughter which had occurred uh, some 15 years early. Or, and um, it was on the retreat at uh, Spirit Rock down in California just this last fall. I had never met the woman before. And, um, and, she, uh, and she began to talk to me about how she was using this retreat and was telling me about the grief that was still coming up in relationship to her daughter. And uh, we met together two or three times during that retreat. 
And how we worked together was that she began to get a sense of letting go of the form of her daughter as being that child uh, and beginning to realize that now where her daughter was, was in the earth, as a part of the earth. And then she would walk out on the land and she would feel the relationship with her daughter through the land. And she said she came to a sense of something fundamental and unchanging where all of us reside that is pitted even that holds the earth itself but is much more than the earth. You see how deep that resonance can come, can take us when we're really truly alert to the sensitivities of what body and earth are about. Essentially there was enormous insight of understanding the unconditioned from those sense of conditions. Once we let go of the forms and expressions and particulars of what the earth holds and begin to see the substance and bedrock of where that sense of expandedness of self takes us, it no longer confides us to that sense of singularity, of separation, of distance, of heaven, of looking for a better place, but melts us into the interconnection in which we are all fundamentally apart. And my teacher in, which I've often told this story, but I have such respect for this teaching, I'll tell it again. When I first went to uh, Thailand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa um, uh, was my teacher in Thailand, and I, would go, I went up to see him, and I uh, thought that the way to get into the monastery was to tell him that I wanted to come and learn from him. And uh, he immediately dismissed me and threw me out of the monastery because he didn't want people coming to learn from him. So I uh, rather begrudgingly um, went to uh, one of the senior monks and said, where did I make my mistake? And the monk said, well, tell him that you want to learn from nature. So. <laughs> I didn't feel like that was true, but I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I wanted to stay. So I went and said that to him, and he, um, and he said, yes, you're welcome to stay then. You're welcome to stay. <laughs> and he put me back into a little cabin that was uh, about eight feet by six feet, little slat wooden cabin in the forest, in the jungles. And there I rested for uh, three years. Um, and for the longest period of time, for months really, I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. He had no Buddha statues in the monastery at all. He would say, if you want to bow to something, bow to that rock. <laughs> and there was no sense of, of, of a formis, formal Buddhist training associated with that monastery in terms of Buddha statues and, and the regular um, uh, text learning or anything like that. He said the, the root of Buddhism was in the heart of the earth. And he would have us live right out there. And everything was done right outside. But over the weeks and months and years that I was there, it began to have a dramatic effect. Not that I was in the forest to do something, but just being in the forest, allowing the forest to affect me rather than to, for I to affect the forest. because. The way most of us relate to nature is that we're going to do something in it. We're going to hike it, 
ski it, walk it. But how many of us really go out to be affected by it, to be touched by it, to allow it to enter us? And, but you can't live out there doing nothing without it affecting you. You open yourself up that way and it really does come in. I remember uh, there, I mean, some of it was just watching the horrors, the unfairness of life, where you'd see a squirrel in a tree and a hawk would just come and grab the squirrel, pull it out like that. Or the monastery had the, these dogs, these Watt dogs. Watt is the name of a is what in Thailand is the name for monastery. So they were monastery dogs. But they're wild dogs. They're just wild dogs. And I had my little dog that would come around my cabin and I would feed it, you know, leftover food. And it was sort of starving and I felt very good about nurturing it back to health and all that sort of thing, even though it was getting mostly rice. <laughs> um, but anyways, but, but I would pour it down on the ground and I'd walk away and all these other wild dogs would come up and bully my dog and eat the food. So I would, I got a stick and I was like chasing them around. I was, I was just another dog. I was just another, I was in the whole thick of it. Just like, <laughs> and I, I had no um, perspective of, of the groundedness of anything. I was just doing the right and wrong, the moral thing to do, the fair thing. It wasn't fair that those dogs were bullying my dog. I remember one, this is a transgression, but I remember once I, uh, there were these uh, monkeys in the tree. These monkeys were um, gibbons. And uh, some of them would come down, and gibbons are about the size of a three or four-year-old child. And they stand up on their hind legs, and uh, they would come down very rarely. But this one time, this monkey came down and started coming over to t touch me, touch my hand. And he got about that far, and one of the dogs came racing out of the woods and almost grabbed the monkey, and the monkey went up the tree. And for the next three years, I never saw the monkey, or any of except in the trees. But then all of them, after that happened, got over my cootie, my little hut, and peed on my cootie. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's intelligence in this universe. <laughs> they put two to two together. So this guy sent that dog after me. I'm going I'm to pay him back. <laughs> but if you want to get a sense of the... Do you want to get a sense of the of the of the world as it changes forms sit out at some of the transition times from night evening to night and from night to daybreak those transition times when a whole set of animals go to sleep and other animals wake up and and how the world comes into being how it, how it comes alive and tell me whether your heart can stay uh, self-concerned and that kind of universal connectedness. See, we don't, we don't have access to that kind of thing frequently around here. In our city life, in our computer-driven world, in our racing around with the speed and carelessness that we do, we end up 
demonstrating from violence rather than from our hearts. And we have to, I believe, be in touch with the fabric of life to get back in touch with the wholesome quality of life, to what life, the meaning, where life really is. If I could uh, read some other quotes. I like this one. Um, this is from Ellen Burns Sherman. The more civilized a human being becomes, the more he needs and craves a great background of forest wilderness to which he may return like a contrite prodigal from the husks of an artificial life. And Henry David Thoreau said, we can never have enough of nature. Never have enough of nature. We can never have enough of nature. But to be in touch with nature is not outside of being in touch with our own nature. We can find the hints and spirits of nature within our own mind and body experience as long as we're not carried off into the abstract in relationship to what it is that we're seeing. If we can put our attention to bear upon our body and feel the physical, we are every bit a part of nature as any wild experience that we may have out in the wilderness. When we can be in touch with the emotions as component parts of our experience, and even thoughts when they don't take us away into what where the drift of their meaning lies, but into the process of life, then we are seeing our nature as represented through the experience of being alive. And therefore, we can base ourselves in our bodies, in our minds, and being in touch with all aspects of ourselves, and be as centered and as grounded as we would be in the Cascade Mountains. And it is here that the meditator seeks refuge. It is here that the meditator seeks refuge. The meditator does not have to go to the mountains to find that nature. We uncover it here and now. We uncover it in the very fabric of our being, in the very experience of being alive, both the mental fabrication and the physical. And we rest with that. And we ground ourselves in that. And we steady ourselves upon that. And we have learned through the course of our training that to be caught up in the abstract, in the conceptual, in the turbulence of thinking, then we are a thousand miles away from our body and spirits. And that it's here and now, in a single act of touching the earth and coming back to the groundedness of spirit, that we can rediscover that anchor. And so I'd like to conclude with something that Chief Seattle said. He said, the meadows, flowers, the body heat of the pony, and human beings all belong to the same family. You must remember and teach your children that the rivers are our brothers and yours, and give rivers the kindness that you would give any brother. 
Whatever happens to the earth happens to the children of the earth. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. Humankind did not weave the web of life. We are but one strand within it. Whatever we do to the web, and not the worldwide web, we do to ourselves. All things are bound together. One thing we know which the white man may one day discover, our God is the same God he also worships. This earth is him, and to harm the earth is to harm the very creator that we all so deeply respect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.